Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Michael is going to read our text for us this morning and then we'll uh, jump into the word. This is Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Thanks, Michael. All right, well, today we will be in chapter 13 of Hebrews and chapter 13 is the last chapter of Hebrews. This is the culmination of Hebrews right here today. And so to understand where we're going in chapter 13, we have to look back at where we've been. And if you were here last week, Tim mentioned it. He said it has been 12 chapters of being laser focused on Jesus. Specifically, the author has been teaching us over and over and over again, Jesus is better. In the first 10 chapters, he lays out this case, this case that Jesus is better. And he shows us that Jesus is the better Moses. He is a better rest. He's a better high priest. He's a better covenant. He's a better temple. And he's a better sacrifice. And then in these last two chapters, in, in chapters 11 and 12, he starts to show us what it looks like to live like we really believe it. What if we really believe that Jesus is better? And so in chapter 11, we see story, story after story of people who lived like they truly believe that Jesus is better. And then last week in chapter 12, we are invited to join them. In the first two chapters of, or the first two verses of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It says, let us also, let us join those who have gone before us and let us also lay aside every weight and every sin. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It says, let us run with endurance. Let us endure, fixing our eyes on the one who endured. So how did, how did Jesus do it? Well, Jesus, his eyes were always fixed on his father. His father was his unshakable source of joy. And so with his father, that source of joy, that joy always set before him, he endured. 
And then Jesus calls us to do the same. He says to fix our eyes on him, our unshakable source of joy. And with Christ set before us, with that joy set before us, we endure. And the author comes back to this in the last two verses of chapter 12. There he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful. And the Greek word for grateful here, it is an echo of that joy from earlier. It communicates gratitude, delight, enjoyment. He says, let us be grateful and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So he says, from this place of joy, fixing our eyes on Jesus, delighting in him, we live differently. As it says, we live to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And we talked about this word reverence a few weeks ago. This reverence is this holy desperation, knowing that God is all we need. He is the only one who satisfies. And then awe, this awe we can think of as holy delight. All my love, all my enjoyment, all my delight is in him. And so that brings us to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we get to see what it looks like to offer God acceptable worship. And it is the acceptable worship of love. In verse 1, it says, let brotherly love continue. So right out of the gate, the author gives us a reminder. He reminds us who we are. This is a certain kind of love. This is brotherly love. In the NIV, it says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And this is not new language. Uh, he has been laying the groundwork for this all throughout Hebrews. Way back in chapter 3 and verse 1, the author of Hebrews calls us holy brothers and sisters. And then last week in verse 12, we saw that God calls us his children and he treats us as children. And so this identity is a really big deal. Because if we are going to keep reading, if we are going to learn how to love, it's not going to come from a sense of duty or obligation. It's going to come from a sense of identity. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In Christ, we are sons and daughters. We are born of God. And as sons and daughters, we get to know God. We get to experience his love. We get to enjoy him. We get to delight in him. So it's actually not just our identity. It's actually delighting in our identity. I used to think, you know, we simply love because it's our, our identity, it's who we are. As followers of Jesus, it's just a natural thing to love. Kind of like eagles fly, lions roar, uh, God's kids love. But what, and I think that's true, I think that's partly true, but what I'm learning is it's a little bit more than that. We love because we are grateful to be God's kids. We delight in being God's kids. Kids. The more we love being God's kids, the more we act like God's kids. It reminds me of my son. My oldest son, his name is Rustin. 
He's nine years old, and the last two years, he has played flag football. And year one and year two were very different experiences. Because in year one, he was basically just on the team. Uh, he had a jersey, he played in the games, he went to practice, but he did not delight in football. That, that was not fun for him. He would come home and I'd be like, hey, let's throw the ball around. And it was like pulling teeth just to get him outside to throw the ball around for five minutes. And then he's like, I'm good, I just wanna go inside. And so he did not delight in football, but this year, year two, I don't know what happened, but it's completely different. All he wants to do is play football. He loves football. He goes to practice and he wants to stay after practice. He takes the football everywhere he goes so that he's always ready to play catch. I get home and before I can get, even get out of the car, he's like, hey dad, you wanna play catch? And I'm like, okay, all right, one more time. Okay, let's go. And so he loves playing football. He delights in playing football. And since he is delighting in being a football player, that's all he wants to do. And that's the call for us today. It's to delight in our identity. Let us delight in our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And let us love. So today we're going to see three expressions of brotherly love. We're going to see what it looks like to love strangers. We're going to see what it looks like to love our siblings, and we're going to see what it looks like to love our spouse. So first, strangers. In verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We are to show hospitality to strangers. So first we have to know, what does this even mean? Who is the author talking about when he says strangers? So we have to go to their town and, and think about who is the audience? Who's the audience of this letter? And as we talked about, it's a group of Jewish believers. So for this audience, a group of Jewish believers, strangers would be people that are outside of the family of God. Outsiders or, or non-believers or even more specifically, maybe non-Jews or Gentiles. And it's interesting, this phrase, this whole phrase, to show hospitality to strangers, is actually one word in Greek. It's the word philoxenius. Philoxenius. And so philoxenius is actually kind of a compound word. It's philo for friend and xenius for stranger. So what he's actually saying is make strangers your friends. Or even maybe more literally, befriend strangers. And why would we want to do that? Why do we want to befriend strangers? Well, because that is how we delight in our identity. We befriend strangers because our Father befriends strangers. That's what he does. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And that is not easy to do. That's hard to do because it says our father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And most people don't want to love ungrateful, evil people but right here, Jesus is not calling us to be most people. He's calling us to be like his father. And Jesus lived like his father. Jesus loved to befriend strangers. 
He ate with tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. He defended prostitutes. And last week up in Hill City Kids, we talked about a time that Jesus befriended a Samaritan woman. Someone that he had no business talking to. Jewish men and Samaritan women would never talk, but Jesus didn't care. He saw her and he loved her and he befriended her. And after this, after Jesus befriends the Samaritan woman, the disciples find Jesus. They went ahead and they got some food and they bring it back to Jesus. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we got some food. And Jesus tells them, hey, I have food that you know nothing about. And the disciples are really confused by this. They're like, what? Did someone else bring you food? I thought, I thought that was our job. Who, who brought you food? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. My food, my delight, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What Jesus is telling them that is he loves to do the will of the Father. It's a delight. And as we read through the Gospels, we see it over and over again. Jesus always has his head up and his eyes open looking for someone to love. We'll look at one other quick story. We'll look at the story of Matthew when Jesus meets Matthew. In Matthew 9.9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So this is Jesus just in the normal flow of his day going from one place to another. He's got his, his head up, his eyes open, and he sees a tax collector. Again, someone most people would say, man, that, that guy is ungrateful and evil. Don't mess with him. But Jesus, that's, he's like, that's exactly who I'm looking for. Jesus seeks him out. He's not wrapped up in his own plans. He's not wrapped up in his own needs. Again, he's got his head up and his eyes open looking for someone to love, and he finds Matthew. And just what Jesus did for Matthew, Jesus did for us. Like the hymn says, it says, Jesus sought me when a stranger. In Ephesians 2, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And Paul is talking to a group of, of Gentiles here, believers in Christ, and he's saying, you were strangers, having no hope without God. But then he goes on, and in verse 13 he says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so Jesus delights in his identity. He is merciful as his father is merciful. And now the author of Hebrews says, it's time. It's time for you to join the father. It's time for you to join the son. And let's go love strangers. Let's befriend strangers. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, I, th I think before we can lift our heads and open our eyes, we have to pray. And it reminds me of Corey Ten Boom. So Corey Ten Boom, her and her family lived in Holland during World War II, and, and Holland was occupied by Nazi Germany. So at this time, uh, the, the Germans, the Nazis, are going into Holland and, and arresting all the Jews and putting them in prison and putting them in concentration camps. And so Corey and her family, they decide they're going to do everything they can to help rescue them, help these Jewish people escape. And so as they're doing this, they get caught. And so Corey and her family end up in prison, and then they eventually end up in a concentration camp. 
And Corey is one of the only people in her family that survives this. And after surviving this, she wrote a book. It's called uh, The Hiding Place. And at the end of her book, Corey talks about a time after all this where she's speaking somewhere. And, and after she's speaking, she comes face to face. Someone comes forward and she comes face to face with one of her guards from the concentration camp. One of the men who had mistreated her while she was in a concentration camp. And he wants to come and thank her for her message of love and forgiveness. And in this moment, she, she talks about it in her book. She's like, I didn't want to forgive him. I didn't want to love him. And so she prayed. She silently prayed as this man is talking to her. And she still couldn't love him. And so she prays again. And this is what she says happened. She said, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. As we pray for our enemies, God does a miracle inside our hearts. He consumes our hate, our worries, our fears, our plans, our excuses. Every human instinct inside of us is consumed by the love of our Father, and we are free to love. We can lift our heads and open our eyes and look for someone to love. So the first expression of love is to befriend strangers. And the second expression of love is to show compassion to our siblings. So we'll see it in verse 3. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So again, we have to go back to their town and ask, who is he talking about? Who are these people in prison? So at this time, it is not a safe or easy thing to be a follower of Christ. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison. So when the author says, remember those who are in prison, the audience immediately thinks of their brothers and sisters in Christ, their spiritual siblings. And it says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. So this is a call to compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with, to share someone's suffering. And why would we want to do that? Why would we want to share someone's suffering? Again, it's because it's who we are. Our Father is compassionate and gracious. Jesus is compassionate and gracious. And we see it in John chapter 11. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were followers of Jesus, some of Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus is told that Lazarus has died. So Lazarus goes to be with Mary and Martha. And we'll pick up the story in John 11:32. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So here it says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Moved to the point of tears, Jesus wept. Jesus suffered with Mary and Martha. Jesus shows compassion. So how do we do this? Again, this, this kind of love is hard. How do we do this? Well, even though it's hard, I think that this is actually something we all want. I think we all want this kind of friendship, this close friendship where we can laugh together and cry together. I mean, it actually sounds pretty good. It reminds me of this movie I saw recently just a few weeks ago, the movie Stand By Me. Stand By Me is one of those movies that if you haven't seen it, everyone's like, what's your problem? Why haven't you seen it? And that was me for a really long time until two or three weeks ago, but I've finally seen it, so uh, good for me, I guess. Uh, if you haven't seen it, what's your problem? Go see it. Um, but it actually is really good because it's this beautiful picture of friendship and compassion. Uh, the story revolves mainly around these two 12-year-old boys. And if you've seen it, you know these boys are like best friends. They laugh together. They fight together. They stand up for each other. They challenge each other. And at a few points in this movie, they weep together. And it's awesome. And at the, last, at the very end of this movie, the last line of this movie, it, it hits on something that I think is really true. The narrator is one of these two boys who's now a grown man kind of reflecting back on his childhood. And this is what he says. He says, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus does anyone. And it hits on something. We actually talked a few weeks ago, we talked about this around our table at the Covenant membership class. We were talking about, man, as adults, like really close adult friendships it's kind of hard to come by. Those close friendships are hard to come by. That, that laughing together, uh, fi fighting over things, standing up for each other, challenging each other, weeping together. That kind of friendship is, is pretty rare. And we talked about, like, why is that? And, and I think part of it is because we can't all just hang out together all the time like we could when we were 12. It's like all you do is just hang out and spend time together. But now we're adults, and we have, like, these adult responsibilities. We have to adult we have jobs, and we, and we have uh, family and church and sports and things to fix around the house, and we, we got to do this side hustle. It's like all these things, the list of things goes on and on. But we really do want to have this kind of friendship, so what do we do? Do we say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to let that go? Or do we say, no, it's worth it, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to work really hard and have these friendships? And I used to think that was, that was the most important thing. You just have to work hard at it. But what I'm learning is that to have these kind of friendships, even more than hard work, it takes grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, this is what he says. He says, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. What he's saying is we have to know, we have to realize, we have to be overwhelmed even 
with the fact that we're all going to let each other down. Everyone at some point is going to fail me or is going to let me down. And that everyone includes me. I am going to let you down. I am going to fail you. It includes me and it includes you. You will let someone down. You will fail someone. And that's where grace comes in. It's okay. Bonhoeffer restates this in, in a little bit more poetic way. Later in the book, he says, When the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. When we stop dwelling on all the problems we have with each other, all, all the excuses, all the, way, all the ways people let us down, we can look around and see that God has actually put some pretty amazing people in our lives. And we can be thankful. And then from there, we can pursue deeper, more meaningful relationships from a place of rest and hope rather than self-pity and fear. It reminds me of Paul writing to the Philippians. So when Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, he is actually in prison, exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's in prison, and this is what he says. He says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what's Paul talking about? What's happening here is the Philippian church has sent gifts to Paul. In verse 18, he, he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And what he's saying is, thank you. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And then there's this little section where he acknowledges that, well, it has been a while since I received gifts. But thank you that you have revived your concern for me. There was a time they weren't sending gifts. And what he basically says is, I get it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah, there was a time that you didn't, but you know what? I believe you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So this is not some kind of weird passive-aggressive dig at the Philippian church. He is genuinely showing them grace. And then in verse 14, he says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So he shows them grace, and then he thanks them for their compassion. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we thrive when we show one another grace and compassion. So again, how do we do it? This isn't natural. Just like it's not natural to befriend strangers, it's not natural to show grace and compassion. So again, we have to pray. I think it's no coincidence that Paul starts most of his letters with a prayer for the people that he is about to write to. And Philippians is no different. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we have to bring our siblings to God in prayer. And as we do, again, a miracle starts to happen inside of us. The love of the Father flows through us. And the more we pray, the more we love our brothers and sisters. So as strangers, we are looking to befriend strangers, heads up, eyes open. With siblings, we are looking to show grace and compassion 
And now we come to the third expression of love. And this is, this is to a spouse. In verse 4 it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So this is interesting. You know, the first expression came with this fun promise. You know, as you befriend strangers, as you welcome strangers, you might actually be entertaining angels. How cool is that? That's really fun. And then this third expression comes with a warning. He says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Wow, why? Why this harsh warning? I think we have to go back to the beginning, and, and I mean all, all the way to the very beginning, the first human relationship in Genesis. In Genesis 2, 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jen Wilkin writes about this idea of one flesh, and, and she says it basically conveys two things. It's interconnectedness and permanence. The man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, interconnected, permanent. Another way I think about this is together forever. And that's why this expression of love comes with a warning, because the design is together forever. God's beautiful, loving design is together forever. And sexual immorality and adultery spoil it. They kill and destroy God's beautiful plan for us. Sexual immorality and adultery, they lie to us and they rob us of God's together forever plan. And it really is a beautiful plan. If you know any old married couples, you know that this is true. Um, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I met this 82-year-old lady, and she was talking about her husband who had passed away about a year ago. And she just loved talking about him. Her face, her, her face lit up, and then tears started to fill her eyes. And she's like, man, I, I still really miss him. And it reminds me of, of this song that came out this summer by Johnny Swim called Devastating. And, and this song, it talks about fighting for a marriage where you love your spouse so much that the end is devastating. It says, I want to love you till it's devastating. And later it sums it up and it says, ring on my finger, tag on my toe, that means we made it. Ring on my finger, tag on my toe, that means we made it. And that's the design. This beautiful design. How do we do this? How do we delight in this? Well, we look to Jesus. Jesus delighted in this. He is the groom and the church is his bride. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells us that Jesus gave himself up for the church. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How beautiful is that? What a picture. And I believe this gets at some of that joy set before Jesus as he endured. This church, this bride 
that he might present to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. The next time, next time you go to a wedding and the bride walks down the aisle in that white dress, let it remind you that's a picture of the church. We are washed clean. And here's the best part of this. Best part of Jesus being the bride, or Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride, is it's a together forever thing. John prophesies in Revelation 21. This is what he says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. A bride prepared by her husband for her husband. And as husbands and wives, we do together forever in and through Christ. He empowers us to lay down our lives for each other, one day at a time, one choice at a time. And as we do it, miracles happen. Every time we lay our lives down, it comes back to us in splendor. Every act of service, every act of love, every act of faithfulness, when we do it in Christ, it becomes an act of glory and splendor. So we love strangers, we love siblings, and we love our spouse. And then finally, we are told there's something we are not to love. In verse 5, it says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this love is the thief of all other loves. The Greek word here is love of silver. This love of money, this love of silver, this love for material things, earthly things, it will rob us of our love for people. So we must be free of it. So how do we do that? Well, thankfully, the author makes it easy on us this time. He gives us this conversation that we can have. This conversation we can have with God, and it starts with God reminding us of something. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Ratatouille, but in Ratatouille, at the end of this movie, this food critic, Anton Ego, he takes a bite of Ratatouille. And it is this experience. Immediately, he like flashes back. His mind is filled with these memories of when he was a little boy and he used to eat ratatouille at home. And when the author mentions these words right here, the original audience, it would have been just like that. It's like this bite of ratatouille. And their, their minds are immediately filled with memories of where these words came from. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is Joshua 1.5. When the people of God are getting ready to finally enter the promised land. And God talks to Joshua and he says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So these original hearers, they're hearing this and they're saying, man, just as God was with us in the old covenant, God is with us in the new covenant. 
Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And then the author gives us the other end of the conversation. He gives us our part of the conversation. He says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And again, the original hears, this is, this is another bite of ratatouille. It's like, boom, their minds immediately go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the sixth of six psalms called the Hillel that are recited at every Passover feast. So they've heard this over and over and over again. And so their minds immediately go to Psalm 118 where it says, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And as we say these words, as we hear these words, as we read these words, I think something similar happens in us. We say these words, the Lord answered me and set me free. We believe, we start to live out of this reality that we are set free. He sets us free. And this is the most important conversation that can happen. God speaking to our hearts and our hearts responding. And so, believe it or not, next week is Thanksgiving, and next month is Christmas. It's here. Advent season is upon us, and as a church, we want to do something a little bit different this Advent season. We want to make an extra effort to spend time alone with God and have these kinds of conversations. And we want to equip this church. As a church family, we are going to go through an Advent reading plan. Next week, we are going to release this reading plan. It starts on next, uh, next Monday. And so each day, there's going to be just a few verses to read, somewhere between three and ten verses that you can, can read. And then there will be some questions that, that will help us kind of think through what we're reading and have a conversation with God about what we're reading. And in doing this, we want to follow in the way of Jesus. There's nothing Jesus loved more than spending time with his father. And we are his brothers and sisters. And so in doing this, we want to be like our big brother. It reminds me of my youngest son, Malachi. So I mentioned my oldest son, Rustin. He's nine. My youngest son, Malachi, he is four. And the thing about Malachi is if he sees his brother doing something... He's going to do it. He loves doing whatever he sees Rustin doing. So Rustin digs a hole at the beach. Malachi's going to dig a hole at the beach. Rustin talks like Batman. It's awesome. Malachi talks like Batman. Uh, Rustin plays football. Malachi plays football. And so the other day I noticed that this even happens at the breakfast table. So this is my oldest son, Rustin, right here. And so you'll see he went, he ate the banana first. He gently folded up his banana peel on his plate. Then he unwraps his muffin and puts the muffin wrapper, I don't know if you can tell, but it's right in the middle of a paper towel. So that's Rustin. So now let's look at Malachi. So Malachi, what he did, he decided to eat his banana first, gently fold up his banana peel, set it on the plate, unwrap his muffin, and put his muffin wrapper right in the middle of his paper towel. And I'm like, what in the world? That is so specific. <laughs> that's like every little thing. 
And like, how did you do that? How is that even possible? So a few days later, I caught it. I, I figured out how he did this. So here they are sitting at the breakfast table at the counter. And I don't know if you can see. So we're going to zoom in on Malachi here. Let's zoom in on Malachi's face. And you see his eyes. His eyes are laser focused on his big brother. And that's the call for us. May our eyes be laser focused on our big brother. What if our eyes were so focused on Jesus that we start acting like him even in the little things? Every little thing we do is just like our big brother because we can't take our eyes off of him. We spend time like our father, like Jesus does. We love strangers like Jesus does. We love our siblings like he does. We love our spouse like he does. And I think the benediction of Hebrews is really fitting in the way it captures this. It says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And then we get a comma, a phrase, and another comma. This is the author's last chance to emphasize something, one thing, one thing about Jesus. He's like, this is what I want you to remember. What is it going to be? Is it going to be that Jesus is the heir of all things? You know, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Well, let's see. Let's see what he says. He says, the great shepherd of the sheep. And why would he say that? Why would he choose that? Why would he choose the great shepherd of the sheep? And I think it's because a shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd shows the sheep the way. And just like a shepherd shows the way, Jesus shows us the way. He lived it. He shows us how to delight in our identity as sons and daughters of our king. He showed us. And not only does he show us when we look to him, he empowers us. He works through us every step of the way. So we're going to read this, this benediction one more time from the beginning. It says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.